think we can dismiss our younger children to Children's Church. The rest of you will want to get out your sermon outline that says the I am of Christ. I have that out to follow along. We're at the end of John chapter 8. We've been here for a few weeks now. And uh, coming up to the end of a what has been a long conversation with Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, if you remember, it was uh, there was an incident with a woman that had been brought to them and caught in adultery and how Jesus dealt with that and then engaged in the temple courts with uh, all the Pharisees as they repeatedly challenged him a number of issues. And we're wrapping that uh, scene up this morning. John chapter 8, starting at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater Then our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to hear your word, to hear what difference it makes to our life, to hear how it changes how we think, what we believe, how we act, how we speak. We pray that you would do all that for us this morning, that you would work by your spirit through your word in each of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. He emerged from the metro at L'Enfant Plaza station and positioned himself against a wall beside a trash basket. By most measures, he was nondescript. 
a youngish white man in jeans, a long sleeve t-shirt, and a Nationals baseball cap. And from a small case, he withdrew a violin. And placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and pocket changes seed money. Swiveled to face the pedestrian traffic going through the metro station and began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on January 12th. It was a Friday morning, the middle of the morning rush hour at L'Enfant Plaza. The next 43 minutes, this violinist performed six classical pieces and 1,097 people passed by. Almost all of them were on the way to work, which meant for almost all of them a government job. Turn it down a little. Each passerby had a very quick choice to make, one familiar to any commuter in an urban area where the occasional street performer is part of the cityscape. Do you stop and listen? Do you hurry past with a, a blend of guilt and irritation annoyed by this unbidden demand on your time and your wallet? Do you throw in a dollar just to be polite? Does your decision change if he's really bad? What if he's really good? Do you have time for beauty? Shouldn't you? What's the moral mathematics of the moment? On that Friday in January, the private questions would be answered in an unusually public way. No one knew it but that fiddler standing against the wall outside of the metro in sort of an indoor arcade at the top of the escalators. Long, long escalators at L'Enfant Plaza. The very top, there's sets of doors that you go through, keep the outside from coming in, the, the wind and the weather. And he's in between those doors in what's a, a very large arcade, almost a lobby. He was one of the finest classical musicians in the world, playing some of the most elegant music ever written on one of the most valuable violins ever made. And his performance was arranged by the Washington Post as an experiment in context, perception, and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste in a very uh, ordinary setting at an inconvenient time. Would beauty transcend? He didn't play any popular tunes whose familiarity alone might have drawn interest. That wasn't the test. These were the masterpieces that endured for centuries on their brilliance, soaring music uh, befitting the grandeur of a cathedral or a concert hall. The acoustics proved surprisingly kind. Although the arcade is of a somewhat uh, utilitarian design, the buffer between the outdoors and the escalators uh, somehow caught the sound and bounced it back and forth. The violin is an instrument that's said to be as much like a human voice as any instrument can be. And in this musician's masterly hands, it sobbed and laughed and sang, and it was ecstatic and sorrowful and adoring, flirtatious, playful, merry, triumphal. So what do you think happened? This violinist always performs on the same instrument, and he ruled out using another one for this gig. They told him, you know, don't bring the good one because you're going to be in the metro station. But he said, no, this is what I play. He plays the Gibson X Huberman. It's handcrafted in 1713 by Antonio Stradivari. 
during the Italian master's golden period near the end of his career when his technique had been refined to perfection. No violin sounds as wonderful as the Stradivarius is from the 1710s. He's only owned it a few years ago. The price tag was reported to be in the neighborhood of $3.5 million. And so on Friday, January 12th, there were people waiting in line at the metro station. And they got a lucky break, a free close-up ticket to a concert by one of the world's most famous musicians, but only if they were mine to take note and pay attention. He began with Chacon from Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, Partita Number no. 2 in D minor. Of course, you're familiar with that. He calls it not just one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but one of the greatest achievements of any man in history. A spiritually powerful piece, emotionally powerful, structurally perfect. Plus, it was written for a solo violin, so I won't be cheating. He didn't say it, but it's also considered one of the most difficult violin pieces to master. Many try, few succeed. It's 14 minutes long and consists entirely of single, succinct musical progression repeated in dozens of variations to create a dauntingly complex architecture of sound. Composed around 1720 on the eve of the European Enlightenment. It's said to be a celebration of the breadth of human possibility. That's the piece he started with. And he gave a full concert. He played with acrobatic enthusiasm, his body leaning into the music, arching up on his tiptoes at the high notes. And it just sounded symphonic, and it carried to all parts of the arcade in the metro station as the pedestrians and the commuters filed by. Three minutes went by before something happened. 63 people had passed him when finally there was a breakthrough. A middle-aged man altered his gait for just a split second, turning his head to notice that there seemed to be some guy playing music. He kept walking, but it was something. A half minute later, at the three-and-a-half-minute mark, he got his first donation. A woman threw in a buck and scooted away. It was not until six minutes into the performance that someone actually stopped, stood against the wall, and listened. Things didn't get much better. In the 43 minutes that he played, seven people stopped what they were doing to hang around and take in the performance, at least for a minute. 27 people gave money, most of them on the run, for a total of $32 and change. And that leaves 1,070 people who just hurried by oblivious, many only just a few feet away, few even turning to look. And it was all videotaped by hidden cameras. And you can uh, play the video, uh, and it doesn't get very easy to watch. And, and the, the post said they even uh, sped it up, and it became one of those sort of herky-jerky World War I movies, those silent newsreels. The people scurry by in comical little hops and starts, cups of coffee in their hands, cell phones at their ears, their government ID tags slapping at their belly. And it was sort of a grim uh, dance macabre to indifference, inertia, and the dingy gray rush to modernity. But at this accelerated pace, the fiddler's movements remain fluid and graceful. He seems apart from his audience. Unseen, unheard, otherworldly, you find yourself thinking he's not really there. He's a ghost. But only then do you see it that he is the only one who is real, that all the people passing by are the ghosts.
what he's thinking about as he plays, he says, is capturing emotion as a narrative. He says, when you play a violin piece, you're a storyteller, and you're telling a story. At a music hall, I get upset if someone coughs or someone's cell phone goes off, but here my expectations quickly diminished. I started to appreciate any acknowledgement, even a slight glance, and I was oddly grateful when someone threw in a dollar instead of change. This is from a man whose talents normally command something in the neighborhood of $1,000 a minute. There was no ethnic or demographic pattern to distinguish the people who stayed to watch or the ones who gave money from that vast majority who hurried past whites, blacks, Asians, young and old, men and women, all were equally somewhat represented, but one demographic remained constant. Every single time a child walked past, he or she tried to stop and watch, and every single time a parent scooted the child away. And so they asked the question, if we can't take the time out of our lives to stay a moment and listen to one of the best musicians on earth play some of the best music ever written, if the surge of our modern life is so overpowers us that we're deaf and blind to something like that, what else are we missing? Of course, when I read that article, which was in the Washington Post magazine two weeks ago, I thought about how I would react if I had been there, and I hoped I would recognize the sound of a master at work, but I'm not sure I'm that much better than the majority who didn't. And I couldn't help but think of another master who showed up, who most people ignored, some pitied, only a few really got it. And again, as we've been going through John, I keep uh, finding myself, asking myself, how would I react if I had been there that day? If I had been there at that healing, if I had been in the temple court, if I had been there when that woman was dragged in, how would I have reacted? I hoped I would recognize the sound of a master at work, but I'm not sure I'm that much better than the majority who didn't. This is one of the key themes of the Gospel of John. Jesus has shown up. He's worked in amazing, masterful ways with unbelievable miracles and uncanny wisdom. And over and over and over again, people just don't get it. Two weeks ago, I said Christ shows us by his words who his father is because he says uh, that he speaks about what he's seen when he's with his father. And he's speaking the truth. And to speak the truth requires spending time with God. And so it is for us as well. If we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to be people of the truth, then we need to be spending time with God. And then last week I said it's clear what we must be about. Belonging to God, being a member of his family, means that we must believe Christ. And out of his wisdom and love, God chose us to be a member of his family. Now we belong to him. And because we belong, we're able to hear his word, and believe in Christ. And we can hold to or remain or continue in or abide in Christ's teaching, and thus we're able to know the truth, and the truth sets us free. But it's not enough to be people of the truth, and it's not enough to be people who belong. We have a further calling, and that's to be people who know the one who is the truth and people who know the one to whom we belong. It's easy to profess Christ, but we have to be people who actually know Christ, not merely know what we believe about him. 
And therefore, you must know the one who honors God. Verse 48, you must know the one who honors God. For those of you wondering, we'll get back to the violinist. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Because of all that God has done for us, we need to be people who know Christ. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the unsurpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The Jews, however, rather than trying to know Christ, insult him here in verse 48. They say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They call him a Samaritan whom they hate. They considered it quite derogatory to call a Jew a Samaritan, like calling a New Yorker a redneck or a Georgian a Yankee. Both sides take offense. But it goes well beyond name-calling because they're also accusing him of being demon-possessed. But Jesus denies it and exposes their true motives. Verse 49, he answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And that's what this is about. You are dishonoring me. And his claims and actions are not the fruit of arrogance, illness, or the occult, but just actions of obedience to the Father. By saying and doing always and only what the Father gives him to say and do, he honors the Father. By refusing to respond uh, positively to those same words and deeds, his hearers dishonor him and therefore dishonor the Father who sent him. Westminster Shorter Catechism says our first purpose, our chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And therefore it's clear from this passage we must respond positively to the words and deeds of Christ given to him by God the Father in order that we may know, honor, and glorify him. And that way we'll know, honor, and glorify the Father as well. It's the first thing. You have to know him. Second thing, you must know the one who keeps the word. Who keeps the word. Verse 51 Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? What do you make yourself out to be? For us to know, honor, and glorify Christ, we must know, honor, and keep his word. Life, new life, eternal life depends on Christ who gives us the word. And so we need to hear and keep and hold to his word. He says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And here the Lord Jesus talks about the reason he came into the world, that he might give life to men. And he says the way men 
come to obtain this life is by believing in him. And here he puts it in the negative. He says, they shall not see death. And we've heard that before, of course. In John 5, 24, we heard the Lord say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. That is, in other words, what the Lord teaches here, that men and women who believe in him obtain eternal life immediately while they're still in this world. We hear the same thing in John 3 and in John 6. Life and death. That's what Jesus is all about. To bring life to the dying was his mission to the world and in this world. And now here comes Jesus saying that if we believe in him, we'll never see death. And in reply, the Jews essentially say nonsense. Even the very best men in the world, Abraham, Isaac, Jeremiah, the other prophets of God, Isaiah, they all died. Everyone dies. But that's what Jesus said. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And he says the same thing a number of times in this gospel. Famously, uh, most famously, at the occasion of the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11, where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What does the Lord mean by this? Surely he doesn't mean that Christians won't die. Christians get cancer and heart disease too, suffer strokes, are killed in car accidents and falls, are murdered, even commit suicide. And the Jews were right about that. Abraham died and was buried. And so it is with every one of the great prophets apart from Elijah. And Jesus didn't deny that. He often spoke about physical death. He knew that men and women would die and be buried. But I don't think this is what the Lord means when he speaks of those who trust in him never dying. He's speaking absolutely. And he means that they will not die. But how can he mean such a thing? The reality of death being what it is. Well, the answer to that question lies in the Bible's definition of life and death. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, life and death do not primarily refer to existence or non-existence in this world. It does use the term uh, to refer to that. But, uh, and, and often, uh, life and death are, are used just as they're used today. One is born, lives, and dies, and is no more in this world. But primarily in Scripture, that's a secondary use of these words. It's not as main, it's not its original use. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says, Life never signifies in the scripture simply existence, and death never simply destruction or annihilation. Life and death in their first and foremost meanings refer to conditions or states of existence. And this is how Paul can write to the Christians in uh, Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. And refers to that time before they believed in Christ as a time when they were dead in their transgressions and sins. And he says Christ made them alive when they were dead. Well, they were existing when he wrote to them. They were living human life. But he says they were in their most fundamental and important sense, dead. Physical death is a punishment for sin. The Bible says that probably a hundred times. 
Although the sin of one man, uh, through the sin of one man, death entered the world. But it's only part of the punishment. The larger punishment is that death that human beings suffer while existing in this world and carry with them into the world to come, to that place of judgment where the Bible so ominously refers to as the second death. Compared to this spiritual death, the condition of human existence estranged from God under the bondage of sin, the flesh, and the devil, carrying within the seeds of eternal death. The physical act of dying in this world is of no great moment. Many die who are already dead, much more seriously and permanently than any physical death will make them. And on the contrary, many die who, by faith in Christ, are already everlastingly alive and will be still more wonderfully alive on the other side of death. It's this death and this life that Jesus is speaking of. And what Christ is saying here is that by faith in him, by holding fast to him and his word and his promises and trusting ourselves to those promises and to his death and his resurrection by which he made certain the fulfillment of those promises, we gain life, true life, eternal life, as Paul would Uh, put it later, the only life that's worthy to be called life. And every human being made in the image of a living and eternal God wants true life. Human beings crave life. When they use that word, they don't simply mean existence, a beating heart and working lungs. Most people know full well how it is possible to exist but not be alive. People know the difference between existence and life. They mean life such as uh, they know they were meant to live, life with a high purpose, life with joy and peace and pleasure, life that is dominated by love. What a powerful, what a potent word life is. Isn't that what everyone wants most of all? Real life to escape the horrible specter of death? Well, death comes because of sin, and it can only be removed if sin is removed, and no one can remove our sin and its guilt. Excuse me. Excuse me, except the Son of God. That's the great truth of this world and of life in this world. So what a remarkable promise the Lord makes here in John 8. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And if you don't think this is important and meaningful and applicable to our lives, you're sorely mistaken. Ask the families of the five Christian students who were gunned down last Monday at Virginia Tech. Ask those families of this promise of real life with Christ is important to them this Sunday. Perhaps we need to be confronted by physical death to understand the importance of spiritual death and understand the importance of what real life means to our everyday life when Christ promises it to us. And there's the basis For the gospel, the good news, surely the best news in all the world, that you can live and live forever and live truly. And it's not merely a dream. It is real. Christ has made it real. And he gives that life to anyone who comes to him. Eternal life depends on having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. And he gives us his word to lead us in that relationship with him so that with the Apostle Paul, we might count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus my Lord, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It is a remarkable promise. Finally, you must know the one who knows God. You must know the one who honors God. You must know the one who keeps his word. You must know the one who knows God. Here Jesus continues to teach the Jews about himself, starting verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. By way of reminder, there are seven I am statements found in the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate. I am the good shepherd, I am the way, I am the vine, I am the resurrection and the life. And each of these uh, magnificent metaphors, this phrase, I am, harkens back to when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And when Moses saw the flames of fire, he wanted to get a closer look, and he was told to remove his sandals because God's presence had made it holy ground. And after Moses is informed that he will lead God's people out of Egypt, and he wonders how to respond to just the myriad of questions that the Israelites are going to have for him. Particularly, he wants to know what to say when they ask him about God's name. Who told you to do this? Under whose authority? And God answers Moses in Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is God's covenantal name. Often we find it in the scriptures as Yahweh. The title was so sacred that it was only to be uttered by the high priest and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it literally means I am who I am and signals the truth that nothing else defines who God is but God himself. What he says and what he does is who he is. And Jesus claims God's holy name, I am, the name God used for himself at the burning bush back in Exodus 3, which we read as our responsive reading this morning. It was the name the Jews considered so holy they refused to say it out loud for fear of being struck dead. And that's the name that Jesus takes to boldly proclaim his own divinity. And every time Jesus makes one of these I am statements, he's emphatically stating that he is Yahweh. It's a staggering statement of sovereign supremacy. Just as that bush uh, burned brightly, cast light all around, so too Jesus is the light of the world and a consuming fire that should stop us in our tracks because we're on holy ground. When Jesus used the phrase, I am, he did so on purpose. 
And those who listened to him didn't miss the connection he was making. Jesus is saying, whatever you think about me, remember this, I am Almighty God. Now, as you can imagine, this just riles up the Pharisees. They interrupt Jesus ten times in John chapter 8. They've taken offense at his outrageous utterances, especially his teaching that anyone keeps his word will never die. So they ask him a pointed question, verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And Jesus pushes them further than they're intending to go when he declares in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You want to be known as belonging to Abraham? Well, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He was glad. Why aren't you acting like this? And so once again, they mock him. You you just have to watch uh, politics to see this happen. When you can't answer the debate, the question, deal with the issue, you just make fun of the person. Happens every year, all the time. And they do the same thing here. They don't know how to respond to this scandalous statement, so they turn to sarcasm. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Kind of like, give me a break. They're probably just laughing to themselves at the absurdity of the statement. But Jesus isn't finished yet. See, he responds with what is probably his strongest statement about his divinity in all of the scriptures. He says, verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And at this point, they've had all they can take. Because he's saying that he was around before Abraham, and once again he's declaring himself to be one with Yahweh. And this is just flat-out blasphemy to their self-righteous ears. And they respond in outrage because they finally get it. They've heard him correctly. The text says, and they pick up stones to kill him, the very God whom they claim to serve. And it's not by accident that John 8 begins with Jesus defending a woman with the words, John 8, 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And John 8 ends with the religious leaders picking up stones to hurl at him, the only one without sin, to give him the death from which he saved the woman. There's a stark contrast presented here between Jesus and his opponents. He says, God gets and gives the glory, not you. I'm the one who knows him, not you. I'm the one who keeps his word, not you. And as we've seen throughout John, there's things about Jesus that defy description. There's a, I'm not a huge fan of the Christian writer Beth Moore, but she did say something I really liked. She stated our job is not to explain Jesus, but to explore him. And instead of defining him, we discover him. You can't explore the person and work of Jesus Christ if you're just too busy. You'll never discover the Jesus who promises real life if you don't take the time to stop and listen to what he says. So we go back to our first story to see what happens to those who didn't pass him by. To really understand what happened with the violinist in the metro station, you've got to rewind the video. And go back from the moment his bow first touches the strings. 
There's a white guy, khakis, leather jacket, briefcase, early 30s. His name was John David Mortensen. He's on the final leg of his daily bus to Metro commute from Reston. He's heading up the escalator. Remember I told you the escalators in L'Enfant Plaza were long. One minute and 15 seconds if you don't walk. So like most everyone who passes by the violinist this day, Mortensen gets a good earful of music before he has his first look at the musician. And like most of them, he notes that it sounds pretty good. But like very few of them, when he gets to the top, he doesn't race past as though he was some nuisance to be avoided. He's the first person to stop. He's the guy at the six-minute mark. And on the video, you can see him get off the escalator and look around. And he locates the violinist, stops, walks away, but then comes back, checks the time on his cell phone. Apparently he's three minutes early for work. So he settles against the wall to listen. Mortensen doesn't know classical music at all. He says the closest he gets is classic rock. But there's something about what he's hearing that he really likes. As it happened, he arrives at the moment that the violinist slides into the second section of Bach's Chacon. It's a point, he says, where it moves from a darker minor key into a major key. There's a religious, exalted feeling to it. Mortensen doesn't know about major or minor keys. Whatever it was, he says, it made me feel at peace. The cultural hero of the day arrived at L'Enfant Plaza pretty late in the unprepossessing figure of one John Piccarello, a small man with a bald head. Says he hit the top of the escalator just after the final piece began. And in the video, you see him stop dead in his tracks, locate the source of the music, and retreat to the other end of the arcade. He takes up a position past the shoeshine stand, and he doesn't budge for the next nine minutes. Like all of the passers-by that were interviewed for this article, he was stopped by a reporter after he left the building and was asked for his phone number. He was told this was going to be an article about commuting. When he was called later in the day, like everyone else, he was first asked if anything unusual had happened to him on his way to work. And of the more than 40 people they called, John Piccarello was the only one who immediately mentioned the violinist. He said there was a musician playing at the top of the escalator at L'Enfant Plaza. Well, haven't you seen musicians there before? Not like this one. What do you mean? This was a superb violinist. I've never heard anyone of that caliber. He was technically proficient with very good phrasing. He had a good fiddle, too, with a big, lush sound. I walked a distance away to hear him. I didn't want to be intrusive on his space. Really? Really, it was that kind of experience. It was a treat, just a brilliant, incredible way to start the day. He knows classical music. He's actually a fan of this violinist, but didn't recognize him. He hadn't seen a recent photo, and besides, most of the time, he's pretty far away. He doesn't get the up-close seats. But he knew this wasn't a run-of-the-mill guy out there performing. And on the video, you can see him look around now and then, bewildered. The other people just weren't getting it. It just wasn't registering. That was baffling to me, he says. When they prepared for this event and set this up, the editors at the Washington Post magazine discussed how would they deal with all the likely outcomes. Their widely held assumption was that there would be a problem with crowd control in a demographic as sophisticated as Washington. The thinking went, people would surely recognize this man. 
Nervous what-if scenarios abounded as people gathered. What if others stopped to see what the attraction was? Word would spread. Cameras would flash. People would flock to the scene. Rush hour pedestrian traffic backs up. Tempers flare. The National Guard is called out. Tear gas. Rubber bullets. As it happens, exactly one person recognized him. She didn't arrive until near the very end. Stacy Furukawa, a demographer at the Commerce Department, for her, there was no doubt. She doesn't know much about classical music, but she had been the audience three weeks earlier at his free concert at the Library of Congress. And here he was, an international virtuoso, sawing away, begging for money. She had no idea what the heck was going on, but whatever it was, she wasn't going to miss it. She positioned herself 10 feet away from him, front row, center. She had a huge grin on her face, and she remained planted in that spot until the very end. It was the most astonishing thing I've ever seen in Washington, Furukawa says. He was standing there playing at rush hour. People were not stopping, not even looking. Some were flipping quarters at him. Quarters! I wouldn't do that to anybody. I was thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of city do I live in that this could happen? This violinist's latest album is called The Voice of the Violin. It's received the usual critical acclaim, delicate urgency, masterful intimacy, unfailingly exquisite, a musical summit will make your heart thump and weep at the same time. Right after his subway performance, he packed up his $3.5 million violin and headed off for a concert tour of European capitals. But he came back to the United States on Tuesday, April 10th. He had to. He came back to accept the Avery Fisher Prize, recognizing that Joshua Bell, the flop of L'Enfant Plaza, got the Avery Fisher Prize as the best classical musician in America. Day after day, there is one who stands before all the people passing by and says, you're spiritually hungry. I'm the bread of life. You're spiritually thirsty. I have living water. You live in spiritual darkness. I am the light of the world. You are dead in your sins. I am the Savior God, the great I am, who offers you the only life that's worthy to be called life. But we are such busy people. We're rushing to work. We're late to school. We're overwhelmed by responsibility. And way too often, we're just too tired to care. And yet the Master has shown up in our world. Are you able to recognize the sound of the Master at work? Will you stop and listen? You need to pray.